It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. As I promised you, this is part two with Peter Broderick, who is our distribution strategist. He's former president of Paradigm Consulting and a longtime expert on distribution strategies customized to help independent documentary filmmakers maximize their revenues, audience impact, and help their career get way off the ground and into the stratosphere. And he's got a long track record with that. Peter, welcome back. Thank you for putting up with us one more time. (laughs) It's great to be back, Serena. I really enjoyed our last talk, and there was so much information there that, as I promised our listeners, I'd get you back. Festivals have changed, and they are evolving now. So tell us how you feel about using the festival circuit in general for promoting your films. Well, let's go back to before there were virtual festivals for a minute, to when when we had physical film festivals. For documentary filmmakers, festivals are not essential. They can be helpful, for sure. But uh, a number of films I've worked on that have never went to a single film festival have been wildly successful. And I think sometimes filmmakers think that um, festivals are way more powerful than they actually are. With fiction filmmakers, festivals are more important. Mm-hmm. Unless you're making zombie movies, I think uh, you know festivals are, are really significant. But what's happened is that starting in 1933 with the founding of the Venice Film Festival, from, from then until the spring of 2020, which is almost headed toward 90 years, festivals didn't change. The idea was you'd have a few days or maybe a week in one location and a lot of movies would get shown. And then um, a year later, you'd be back in the same location around the same time and new movies would be shown. Mm -hmm. And at various points, people approached me, the Rotterdam Film Festival in the late 90s said they were really interested in the idea of reinventing festivals. And I said, well, that's great because the limitation of festivals is they're in one location once a year uh, and they have an audience that's limited to the people that can actually get to that location. And I had already could see at that time that there were things that could be done online if you wanted to reach a, a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Well, people talked about it, but nothing changed. And then coronavirus appeared and physical festivals were too dangerous. They, and that's what the case is right now. So they, they stopped. So at that moment, festivals were forced to make changes, to try to reinvent festivals and come up with a model that could work online. And some festivals canceled, other festivals postponed, and some festivals became virtual. Mm -hmm. And the festival that I know the most about that became virtual that was wildly successful is a festival in Copenhagen called CPH Docs, and Docs is D-O-X. And they had been around for 14 years as a physical festival, and they're probably the second most important documentary festival in the world. 
but they didn't know in early March what um, what was going to happen with the virus. And then one night, uh, the festival team is gathered around some monitors watching the prime minister talk on television. And she said she was closing the borders. And they realized that that was the moment they were going to have to decide whether they were going to not do the festival at all or go virtual. They decided that night to go virtual, knowing that that night was the last night they could gather. Wow. From that point on, <laughs> they were all working from home. And somehow, in six days, they were able to convert the festival from a physical model to a virtual model. They showed 150 films. You could buy tickets uh, online for six euros. They, they could sell up to 1,000 tickets of films. And the festival could get extended because once something's virtual, then where, whereas you couldn't extend a physical festival where you've got you know buildings and rentals and all that stuff, with a virtual festival, we can just say, okay, let's, <laughs> let's go another month. By popular demand. <laughs> right, which is essentially what they did. And it ended up, the festival was really successful. They had the biggest audience ever. The audience was, uh, in Denmark, in the past, mainly people in the Copenhagen, greater Copenhagen area attended the festival. But now it was virtual, and people throughout Denmark could connect with the festival. So they diversified their audience. And going forward, now they have a, a bigger base to, to build on in the future. And one of the most interesting things they learned was what, what kind of special events you can do. So the, the example is Edward Snowden was going to Skype into the physical festival, and there would be a room with 620 seats. And he was going to be speaking in a discussion after a film. So once the festival became virtual, they weren't limited by 620 seats. And, and when the event was live, over 2,000 people around the world were watching it. And since then, more than another 90,000 people have seen it. So you went from 620 seats to more than 92,000 people seeing the film, or seeing the discussion. Wow. And that shows, you, you know, the exciting possibility of, of being global. And they, they monetized it, the initial uh, live event, but after that it's been free. So, um, but if you think about, okay, well, if they charged a dollar a view, that could have been $92,000. And so now we think about, okay, before festivals were limited to people, you know, in that town, uh, now festivals can be limited to a, a country, a continent, or be entirely global. So it's a whole new set of possibilities. And my firm conviction is that once people are doing virtual festivals and learning the advantages, opportunities, that when they have the ability to be physical again, they're going to become hybrid because they're going to save the special opportunities that virtual provide and add to those the old opportunities that they knew from physical festivals. And those festivals will be the best festivals we've ever seen. I would bet. You know, 
There's a question that comes to mind. I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but it's occurred to me. When CPH docs changed to a virtual model, where were they housing the media so people would see it? Did they put it up on YouTube? Was it on Vimeo? Did the media live on their site? I'm wondering if you know the answer to that question. Yeah, I do know the answer. There's a company called Shift72. Mm-hmm. They're based in New Zealand. And they were able to uh, put all of the films online in 18 hours, all 150 films. And so... Um, the panels during the festival were ended up on YouTube, mm-hmm. and the um, Edward Snowden thing was a, I think was similar, but the actual films were screened through the through the festival's the platform that Shift Seventy Two helped the festival build. There you go. Okay, that that makes me feel a little more uh, secure. Pun intended. That and also festivals are notorious for having cutting edge content, depending on the festival, of course. And some of that cutting edge content might get censored if you go on to a public platform. So it's nice to know that there are companies like this uh, company in New Zealand that can help do that. Well, also in terms of piracy, Shift72 software is state of the art. But 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 have said that and. I assume most of your listeners know this. However good your anti-piracy software is, there's nothing to stop somebody from filming a film off a monitor. Of course. And um, But anyways, they did a great job. And now Shift72 is going to be doing the Toronto Film Festival, the Sundance Film Festival, and I think the New York Film Festival, because they're, they're, the, they're the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. We've, we had trouble with piracy many, many years ago. I mean, it's been going on forever. There's always a way for somebody to sneak a copy of the film. But, you know, I, I am recalling a couple that were standing in line overnight to see a film in Berlin at the Berlinale. And I asked them why they were going to see the movie and why did they spend the night? And they said, oh, well, we've seen it at home several times, but we really want to see it in the theater. <laughs> Because they had pirated the film. (laughs) And that's hard to do in Germany, by the way. But they had somehow figured out using a torrent software and they had pirated the film, but they liked it. So they wanted to see it in the theater and they were paying to go into the theater to see it. And also, I think that a lot of people who pirate these movies, not all of them are reselling them. It's still scary, though. I mean, I'm a member of the Producers Guild, and we do worry about this very much. Yeah, I think that with companies like this around, it makes the virtual screenings a lot more safe and a lot more comfortable for us as producers. So that's good. Yeah. But, but Serena, when I'm asked by filmmakers about piracy, generally what I say is that piracy in your top 20 problems uh, of, as being an independent filmmaker, piracy is not in the list. But obscurity is right near the top, so I would worry a lot, a lot more about obscurity than piracy. And I and I think there are situations where films have gotten built some kind of awareness um, by being available that way, and then it's it's actually enhanced their ultimate distribution. So um, I think there's a set of folks that you know exist use torrents all the time and will continue to do that, but. Most people I know, that's not something that's, you know, part of their lives. Mm-hmm. 
So if somebody is an independent filmmaker and they do want to participate in either the virtual or the hybrid uh, situation, what advice do you give them about the kind of team they need to put together to help them do that? Well, that's an interesting question because in the you know, physical model, in-person networking was a very big component of a film festival. And in the virtual model, the same thing isn't true. So I think that you have to think about a couple things, which is um, to what extent you can use the, the fact you're in this festival, this kind of seal of approval in a way, to what extent you can reach out to the press. And I, I don't count on the festival press office to do it for you. And then in terms of distributors to be proactive there. So if you're going to a festival, and that's been around for years, you know, they're going to have a list of which press people were at their festival last year. Maybe they'll even have the list of who's going to be there this year, even if it's virtual. Same way with industry. They'll know what distributors regularly go. So I think that one of the first things that a filmmaker should do is get a list of um, press and industry that, that were there last year and if they know what this is going to be. And then they can have the opportunity to reach out to those people directly. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think that festivals are beginning to develop ways to allow kind of virtual networking. I know the CPH docs, when they were on the conference side, they created a waiting room where people who were in between Zoom meetings could hang out. So it was distributors and financiers. And then those people, while they were in the waiting room, were networking with each other. So I think we haven't totally figured this out yet, but I think there will be possibilities to do that. And then also, when a filmmaker is in festival mode or conference mode, if they can do a one-on-one -on -one or one distributor and their team, Zoom, I think that gives them the possibility of maybe a more... Um, a higher quality contact mm -hmm. than just running into somebody to party and, <laughs> and absolutely well and they've had some wine to drink and they don't remember you the next day that's right you that's know right. so <laughs> what, what's what's exciting about it is that when uh in the first iteration of festivals virtual festivals some festivals have just tried to copy exactly what they did as a physical festival and not not really thought through the possibilities of being virtual. And with the can market, which just happened, it was amazing how literal they were in duplicating the way the marche was laid out with the booths and the the way the screenings were handled. And I guess that's a that's a that's an okay way to begin. But once you do it once, then you're going to say, well, that that really didn't work so well <laughs> just trying to translate from what it used to be so now let's figure out you know what we can do looking forward and in the case of cph stocks they're interested in all the new opportunities that they can provide to filmmakers and i'll give you a couple examples so in a typical festival if you have a film you you get a chance to introduce it if you're in in town that day and maybe you get a few minutes to say some pro forma thing and then you sit down well, in a virtual festival, 
you could have created a, a digital introduction, which would, could be more minutes and could maybe talk a little bit about some of your other films and why you were so passionate about making this one. So it'd be more substantive and give people a better sense of you as a passionate filmmaker. Okay, so let's can, then go to the Q&A. So as you know, typical festival Q&A, 15 to 20 minutes, really superficial, you know, always getting asked the question of how much was your budget. And you don't really learn that much. And as a filmmaker, you have a sense there's an audience out there and hopefully they liked your movie, but beyond that, whatever. So imagine a situation where the Q&As are done in the Zoom mode. They're way more interactive. They can be longer. And um, the filmmaker's going to learn a lot more than they would in this kind of um, physical Q&A model. And then here's another possibility. When somebody buys a ticket for a virtual festival, the festival could give them an opportunity to opt in to the filmmaker's mailing list or their social media. So that way, the filmmakers could build their personal audiences that they take with them throughout their careers. I think that I think that would be really exciting. And here's one more idea. So when you go to a, a big festival, let's say Toronto or Sundance, and there's a film that's going to play and by a director you've never heard of, and you look at the bio, and the bio is, you know, usually three sentences, and it lists some other films that they've made previously that you've never heard of and probably will never have a chance to see. <laughs> well, what if in a virtual festival they had links to the previous films of that filmmaker, even if they're not in distribution, they can work with the filmmakers and make them available, you know, through their through their servers. And that way, you could see somebody's body of work that you were excited about. I think that would be amazing. That would be. Everything's changing, isn't it? It's moving fairly fast. Boy, that train is on the tracks. Well, I used to say, Serena, that it things are changing every twenty minutes. I think now it's every five minutes. But I think what what that means is that people can be experimenting mm -hmm. and uh, exploring new new models and not just stuck in the in, in the old model that's been around for decades. Well, nonlinear editing too allows you to output just about any format, so you can meet the requirements of any festival. I mean, some of them are even taking H.264 formats now for the films. Right. I would always worry about really good sound, though. I think that's very important. But this is awesome, and we could get into the whole tech side, you know, the geek in me is coming out, but they can contact any of these festivals and get the submission rules and find out exactly what format they need to submit it. I'm, I'm thinking that the reason they could mount this in six days was because they had already gotten mostly digital submissions. So they just rode the, the crest of that wave and turned it into something wonderful. I really have not had a lot of interaction with that festival. I'm definitely going to look more into it. it. They sound like brilliant people. It's run by two amazing women, and they they took the risk. They had the courage. Um, they didn't look back. The thing was a bigger success than the festival's ever been, and they can't wait till next year when they can, you know, take all that they've learned and, and do better. Now, in terms of Windows, because the Windows have greatly changed as well, are the restrictions for which festivals you enter first now also being lifted, or do you have to go to Con first or Sundance first, or 
Does it matter? Are the festivals changing their rules? Well, I don't think, I, I mean, the festivals, like Sundance did an announcement, sort of, about what would be happening, and Toronto has done a little bit of announcement. <laughs> but <laughs> they don't even know if any, really, if physical screenings are going to be possible. They hope so. So in terms of the rules, I think you would assume that premieres would still be important. And then then that's like trying to figure out, you know, some festivals require world premieres or national premieres. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. Other festivals prefer them. So I think filmmakers need to be careful. But one, one thing people can do is do what I call secret screening. So the True Falls Film Festival has a way in which they'll show a movie. They won't announce it. It won't be in any printed form. Only the people in the room, you know, know what it is. And then the premiere, they've held on to their premiere for South By or, you know, Tribeca. So that's that's an approach that some people are taking. And another thing to, that filmmakers should understand is that and this is particularly true for documentary filmmakers. You can go to, you can screen your film at conferences before you go to festivals or before you you premiere at a festival because those are considered private events and where the public can't come along and and see a film. And so there's ways that you can show your film that aren't going to interfere with a premiere. And I I want to tell you an example of a virtual screening. Uh, can we can we talk about that for? Minute? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So this is a film um, close to my heart called Five Seasons. It's a documentary, feature-length documentary, about the world's greatest garden designer. And I've I've been consulting on the film for a couple of years with the filmmaker. And then early in April, he got an invitation to do a virtual screening where this company called Hauser & Worth, which is an art gallery network, so they would they wanted to make it available for free to people who got their newsletter. They have galleries around the world and they have a mailing list that goes to 50,000 people. So the weekend after Earth Day, late April, the movie was available for three days, 72 hours. And in that time, there were one million views globally. <laughs> and one million views translates into probably 1.5 million people because a lot of the views are, you know, two people are watching it or sure. three people are watching it. So in 72 hours, more people saw that movie than see most documentaries in their entire life cycle. And, and no distributor was required. The filmmaker just had a great partner that could, you know, make it accessible to an audience. And the audience came along. And then there was a lot of word of mouth. And in this situation, the movie's 75 minutes, the average viewing time was 71 minutes. When you think about it, that means that, okay, most people didn't watch the end credits, but most people watched all movie. They weren't just checking it out for a minute or two or five. Mm-hmm. So now for this filmmaker, he, he got a fee to do it, but the, the screenings were free. Um, but he's now gotten lots of requests to do more screenings, which, you know, he can charge for. He's expanded his mailing list um, by, I think, at least 2,000 people. And there's an exponential growth in the awareness of the film around the world, which is going to create all, all sorts of opportunities for him. 
So the idea of a virtual screening where you're making, uh, there's a time, it could be two hours a day, three days, where you're making your film available online, there's so, all sorts of opportunities there because you can charge. If you have a partner organization that wants to do a fundraiser, you can use it as a fundraiser and charge more and then split the revenue <clears throat> with the partner. Hmm. It's a way to, um, you know, build your relationship with these partners where they're going to, you know, support your movie further along the way. And going back to Windows, there's a distinction between private virtual screenings and public virtual screenings. So private virtual screening is only people like members of one organization or um, people attending a virtual conference, but it's not open to the general public. So you could be doing private virtual screenings at almost any, in almost any window and not interfering with the sort of traditional rights. So it, it's, it's kind of an amazing opportunity. And right now in the middle of the pandemic, where filmmakers are stymied because theaters are closed, you know, festivals are in transition, et cetera, et cetera. If they have a great partner that has um, members or a network that's either national or global, they could make the film available to them, and that could be, you know, of, of, of huge value to the filmmaker and the career of the film. How do you think this is going to affect a film's ability to qualify for Academy Awards? You have to have New York and L.A. Yeah. at least, right, in a theater. Well, no, but this year they said uh, the Academy's made an exception, and they said it doesn't have to be in a theater. Okay. Um, because they know how basically theaters are closed. Right. So the the restrictions are have been loosened at least for one year. And then I would also say to filmmakers who are listening that it costs money. Um, I mean, generally people spend about at least twenty thousand dollars, you know, qualifying a film if they're going to be doing four walling theater and. New York and LA and, and doing some publicity with documentaries, you know, each year I'd say 160 to 170 films qualify. And then the short list is 15 films and being on a short list has never helped anybody's career. As far as I can tell, maybe one or two exceptions. So then you're trying to get a nomination. There's, you know, five nominations each year. And I would say in most years there's, you know, two or three films that are shoo-ins. So then it's the 160 films minus the shoo-ins trying to get into um, two or three places. So the odds are extremely long. And if you spend the money and you don't succeed, then um, the money's gone. So a lot of times that there's ways that filmmakers can spend that money in a smarter way and, and get um, guaranteed results. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it should be an assumption that all films need to qualify because so few films uh, manage to make it through the long odds. Hmm. What's happened with aggregators in the last couple of years? Well, it's, it's funny. If anybody could really define that term. <laughs> <as a> distinction, <laughs> it's kind of a loaded question, actually. Between an aggregator <laughs> and a distributor. You know, aggregators can call themselves distributors, I guess no distributor calls themselves an aggregator. Right. But I guess the, the, the simple way to think of it is a distributor is supposed to be responsible or partially responsible for marketing a film, whereas an aggregator doesn't do any marketing or publicity. 
So their job is to really connect the film with um, distributors that are going to make it available. So filmmakers, I think, don't always understand this. And so they'll work with a company and the company will put it on iTunes and Amazon and, you know, try for Netflix and Hulu. Um, but they're not they're not promoting the movie to the public at all. They're just, you know, trying to connect it to distributors. And and that's that's a real challenge because mm-hmm. you somebody's got to be, I mean, the filmmakers themselves or distributors or other partners have to be helping them uh, publicize the film. So, but they're, so the aggregators are kind of in flux. I mean, distributor went under, they were great for a while and then they just kind of ran out of gas. And now filmmakers are worried because, and this is true for distributors and aggregators. A lot of, uh, those companies are not really paying, you know, on time or ever. And so filmmakers worry that not only aren't they going to get paid, but then the company's going to, you know, go out of business and then what? So I think people need to do their due diligence whenever they get a distribution offer. And that, that in my mind requires them or, you know, to, to talk to three to five filmmakers who are in business or have recently been in business with that company and find out what their real experience was. You don't have to find out the exact numbers of how much money they've made, but you can find out if the distributor has lived up to its promises, if they're responsive, and if the filmmakers have actually received some money. So I, I encourage people to always do due diligence because you know no deal is better than a bad deal. And then the second part of it is, when they get a distribution agreement, the way it'll work, if, if somebody's interested in your film, they'll say, well, we'll send you the boilerplate agreement. So translate boilerplate into the worst agreement that they could dream up in a million years. They'll send you that and they'll say, well, but we can negotiate it. I think it'd be much better if they'd send you a fair agreement. Right. And then you could negotiate that. But don't assume that um, you can't negotiate an agreement. Don't be afraid if you only have one offer that if you try to negotiate it for a fair deal, that they're going to run screaming from the room. And the burden in the hand fear that, well, if I don't if I don't take this deal, even though I don't hear good things about this distributor, or even though the deal doesn't seem fair, you know, that I'll never get another offer. I think that's a, a really a bad way to look at things. It costs money to submit to film festivals. Maybe some of them will lower their prices since they don't have the expenses of the, all of the live events. I'm hoping that will happen. But if a if a filmmaker is budgeting for obviously post-production and everything that goes into that, but also PR, marketing, travel, submitting to festivals, can you give us like a ballpark number of say you want to go wide, you wanna you're you have the kind of film as a documentary that festivals are going to like. How much money should you put in your budget for festivals? First of all, a lot of festivals if you rec- if you ask, are we willing either to lower or um, eliminate uh, an entry fee? So I think it makes sense to to you know try that. A lot of filmmakers I know have succeeded somewhere between a third and a half of the time. The next thing is that if your film gets into a film festival, then one of the first screenings you should ask is how much of a screening fee they can pay you. Sometimes what happens is the line kind of goes dead for a while, and then the person on the other end says, well, I'll have to ask my boss. Well, that's <laughs> fine. 
I mean, if somebody else is getting a screening fee, then you should get a screening fee too. But if you don't ask for it, you know, they're not going to offer it to you. Right. So in terms of travel to festivals, I mean, in the short run, there's not going to be a lot of traveling because we'll be in virtual mode for a while. From your kitchen to your garage. (laughs) Right. There you go. Um, So I don't know. I, I think that in, in those situations, uh, you have to kind of evaluate each festival and say, you know, is this a real opportunity? I mean, the clear one thing is clear that if you have a film in a festival and if you're not there, it's like the, the tree falling in the forest with no one to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of festivals that going to them isn't going to really help you a lot because it's a smaller festival. Um, it's really more a local event. So I think people have to be pragmatic and decide, well, these are the ones that are going to re- really make a difference and, and they allocate their um, limited resources to those. Well, Peter, you are an amazing resource for documentary filmmakers. I know that after they listen to this, some people are going to wonder how to get in touch with you. How do they get in touch with you if they have something they want to submit and what do you require of them? Well, it's really easy. My website is peterbroderick.com, which is P-E-T-E-R, B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, E-R-I-C-K.com. And on the website, there's a form that people can fill out if they're interested in the possibility of me consulting with them. Um, it's, we call it a filmmaker form. And then once they fill that out, then I'll look at all the forms and the films that I think I can, um, I may be able to help and I'll arrange to do a phone call with them. They don't have to worry about coming too early because in terms of the kind of work I do, um, there's no such thing as too early, but there is too late. When a film is made, you know, um, fatal errors and and it's beyond help. So early is good. It'd be great if there's something to see visually. So it could be a sample a little clip, a teaser. It doesn't have to be a you know a whole film by any means. Mm-hmm. And then um, then we kind of work from there. But in in many cases, I'll talk to filmmakers, and once I talk to them, and I'll realize that I, there's not a way I can be meaningfully helpful. But on the call, usually I can give them some some helpful advice, and those are all free calls. This is a little off the subject, but I'm just thinking, is there advice you can give people about the length? How long should these be? Absolutely, Ken. So, in general, you don't want your film to be more than 90 minutes or 86 minutes, which is the you know PBS hour and a half version. If your film is 86 minutes or less, then you're, you know, that's a good thing. But even if you've made a feature-length film, I'm going to recommend that you also have a version that's an hour, which would be somewhere in the 54 to 56 minutes um, range. And then, and this may seem radical. And then I'd also like you to have a 15 minute version because, and not a 15 minute trailer, a 15 minute version with content. You're not trying to, you know, shrink the whole movie into 15 minutes, but you're trying to take some content that, is going to be really useful to people. And those versions all can travel in different different lanes and support each other. So in the ideal mode, and uh, 90 minutes, 86 minutes, 
52 to 54 minutes, 56 minutes, and the 15-minute version. And I'd like you to make them all simultaneously, not say, okay, at some some point we're going to get to that. And uh, each of them can, can uh, you know, be great and be used in different ways. That is an amazing idea. I've never thought of doing all those versions at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, usually I'm dealing with a network clock or something like that, you know, and they're very specific about that in my experience. So this is this is great. In the hour version, um, PBS is 56.40, and international, it's generally 52 to 54 minutes. And that also will work for you for educational distribution if you want to be able to be seen in a class period. So that's a that's a really good length. I know that of one filmmaker, she had a feature and also had an hour version, and she'd go around the country and she'd be speaking. And uh, when she showed the feature, no one stayed for discussion. When she showed the hour, almost everybody stayed. And that's just a function of how time works in our lives these days. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and recently, um, two of the films that I've been consulting on, they started out as features and they made the they made hours, and the hours are much better than the features because they just compress things and got to the essence of things, and and they're great. Hmm. Well, speaking of time, I could keep you on forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on again. These are some amazing answers, and I encourage everyone, if you do have a documentary and you want to think about strategizing with someone who can really help you, go to peterbroderick.com. Before we go, Peter, you are in in the process of assembling a whole series of tutorials. Can you tell us where to go when they're ready and when they're coming out? Well, in the short run, they can just go to peterbroderick.com or send me, you can just send me an email, peter at peterbroderick.com, and then I'll get you all the information. It's a virtual crash course. We'll have 10 uh, sessions about the latest in distribution. And we're very, very excited about it. The website for the course is called superchargerdistribution.com. So I encourage people to um, find out more about it. Well, that's wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. I've been speaking with Peter Broderick, distribution strategist, and someone who lives in the fast lane when it comes to documentaries and can give us a lot of information about how to maximize our films. After all, we've been working very, very hard on them for years. Let's let's contact Peter and see what he can do to help us take them even further. Thanks for everything, Peter, and we'll talk with you again very soon. Thanks a lot, Serena. And everyone, remember what I tell you. Get up off your chairs and go do something absolutely wonderful today. This is Serena Catania saying bye for now. 